Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. everyone welcome back to a very exciting episode of the story box podcast today my friends i'm delighted to welcome the very renowned stanford doctor and scientist his name is dr jay Batakaria. now for those of you that somehow don't know who he is instead of me gushing about all his wonderful work and what he's well known for i'm going to ask jay to do his own introduction for you all so i'm going to spin it on jay and ask jay who are you and what do you do? Please take it away, my friend. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a professor in the medical school at Stanford. I uh, have been for the last 20 some years. Um, I am uh, uh, in, the, in the Department of Health Policy. I have an MD and a PhD in economics, of all things, um, a research scientist. I have been um, studying um, infectious disease policy and epidemiology for a very long time. Um, I uh, During the COVID pandemic, I took a stance that was at odds with many other people who are running uh, public health policy against lockdowns in favor of focused protection of vulnerable people against school closures, against the the, the kind of policies that I, I thought were not uh, rooted in in the scientific literature, really. And it was not and, and I knew would cause harm to the poor, to vulnerable, to working class people. So I've been uh, an outspoken advocate against those policies throughout the pandemic. Welcome so much to the Storybox podcast today, Jay. Thank you for having me, Jay. I really appreciate it. It's great to have you here, really. And and like you mentioned in your own introduction, you have been rather outspoken and you've taken a rather different stance on the whole COVID narrative, which was honestly rather crazy, especially here in Australia. I was in Sydney during both of the lockdowns, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into what happened with, with those crazy ordeals a bit later. Uh, and I think it's a rather curious thing how the media had one particular side that they were pushing and how these so-called epidemiologists and scientists were all in line with that same viewpoint. And then anyone that had a differing viewpoint, even if they were considered to be a professional, they were railed on, which I couldn't understand for the life of me, even though, you know, you're not allowed, you weren't allowed to have a difference of opinion during that pandemic, which 
was just crazy. But I guess the best place to start would be you're an epidemiologist, I believe. You're a research epidemiologist. Is that correct? What do what do they research and study for those people that don't know? So I've been um, I've been uh, a professional academic for the last uh, 20, 20 some years, 23, 25 years. Um, my, my formal training is in economics and I have an MD, so I'm a medical doctor. Um, but I've been writing about infectious disease epidemiology since um, almost the beginning of my professional career. Uh, first on HIV, I've written on H1N1 flu, I've written on, um, you know, antibiotic resistant, a whole bunch of like classic uh, uh, policy questions in epidemiology, infectious disease epidemiology. Um, and I've studied lots of other areas as well, but like that's one of my major focuses. Um, and uh, I, like during the, the pandemic, my I was drawn to studying the pandemic because of that experience in publishing in epidemiology. I was I, I had I formed hypotheses about how widespread the disease was early in the pandemic, um, informed again by my by my by uh, my previous interest in H in in swine flu, for instance. Um, I, I ran a study very early in the pandemic uh, measuring antibody levels in the population here in Santa Clara County, California. Um, where we found, uh, you know, like there were 40 or 50 times more cases or in fact, people with evidence of previous infections than had been identified by the authorities, uh, suggesting that the that the lockdowns in the you know, in California anyways, have failed um, early in the pandemic. So it's uh, that that work that I'd done in the past was the basis for the scientific work and also for the 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 policy work that I've done done during the pandemic. Why does this work in particular interest you the most? Well, I think infectious disease is one of these things where uh, you, you would, uh, for most of human history, um, it was the most important health problem people were concerned themselves concerned themselves about. I find that fascinating, um, mm -hmm. and one of the biggest success stories of the 20th century was essentially was especially in developing countries the conquering of that threat. Um, the, you know, with with tools like vaccines um, that that actually I think. Uh, provided a tremendous benefit to the to, to the poor um you know it was really it was like it was the, the poor that faced the biggest harm from these infectious diseases in the past the development of antibiotics and the development of these these kind of technologies that essentially democratize the ability to survive into old age um i i just for for someone who studies policy who studies economics who studies medicine it's just it's like catnip all kinds of really really interesting um and you know uh, in, in, interesting phenomena the other thing is interesting is that uh, is this is that is the way that people react to it tell like you know we economists uh, like to think about the world as if everyone is rational like just like i do calculation and i like optimize and i find but no it, it uh, when you study infectious disease epidemiology what you learn very quickly is that rationality very quickly goes out the window people yeah. people are scared like as we're built our psychologies are our very brains are built to fear these diseases to fear contagion and you can think about human history as a as a, and and the development of civilization as a as a as a sort of like a a structure a structural way to contain that fear to allow us to to be in community with one another even though we are we have in our lizard brains this like this fear that we're all going to get uh, infected by one another um you know uh it, it goes back to the you know ancient times so it just it's almost i mean i don't know how anyone can't want to study this it's just super interesting I find human beings fascinating how we respond to infectious diseases. I'm also 
relatively interested in how infectious diseases play an enormous role in life, let's say that, especially considering COVID was um, not that long ago. And when the pandemic first hit, I'm going, oh, this is going to be nothing. Believe it or not, that was my initial thought. And then I started watching as human beings were so scared, so afraid really quickly. It just it was so heightened, mainly because of, I guess, fear-mongering of the news and not knowing as much as we do now about the actual disease. All we knew was there's this virus that came out of China and then it's just starting to spread around the world and everyone's going, oh, what do we do now? <laughs> so I think it's really fascinating how human beings over history as well have dealt with infectious diseases in rather interesting and curious ways. I'm sure you've you've studied it. So do you, are you able to share some of the, before vaccines were even in the picture, what were some of the things that human beings actually did with certain diseases like the Spanish flu being one of them and even some before that? Uh, I mean, so you let's go back further. Like, so for, I'll just, I'll get like, just tell you one story that I think is, is true. Um, from a book that I read by this man named Charles Mann, who studied the, uh, the, 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 uh, he wrote a book called 1491, which anyone who's listening should go read immediately. Um, the, the book is a, is a, is a retelling of what happened when Christopher Columbus arrived in the new world. Yep. And there's archeological evidence that he developed that he, um, describes suggesting that the new that the new world, you know, the Americas, was teeming with people, millions upon millions of people, North America, South America. It was huge, vast civilizations. We have already have hints of this of the May the Mayans, the Aztecs, um, vast civilizations of people. When Columbus arrived, he brought with him not just his ships, but also uh, smallpox, a disease that was not had not been introduced into the Americas at all. You had this vast population that was entirely immune naive. And within 100 years of that introduction of that new disease to this immune naive population, 95% of the population had been dead, was, was dead. Just the population decimated, civilizations destroyed by this one infectious disease to which uh, there was almost no defense because the, the population was immune naive. Now, smallpox was, was endemic in um, in 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 Europe, this was before the vaccines. It was before any any uh, inoculation at all. It's in 1491. Um, you know, the 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 development of of uh, you know the cowpox as a as a way to uh, sort of address smallpox uh, or or the or the vaccines had were centuries away, um, and yet smallpox didn't decimate Europe, didn't decimate Asia. It's because of immunity, right? It, 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 over centuries, um, the 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 exposure of uh to uh, peoples in these kind of, in it now of course it still caused death and it caused destruction but it didn't decimate 95 percent of the population the way it did in americas um you can see in that little story this is a little story that that world world changing story um what power these little viruses have they shape human life they shape the course of civilizations and have throughout history um in uh, it, for 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 uh, uh, in modern times, the development of these of vaccines and the, of the germ theory and of of antibiotics have allowed us to, to to have some control, but over these, but not over these 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 agents, but not nearly as much as we think. 
Do we know? Right, so, sorry, continue. Oh, you know, sorry, Jay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, like you asked about about 1918 and, and the swine flu. That's a uh, that's a fantastic example, right? That 1918 is is at the tail end of a of a catastrophic war in Europe. Um, the, the huge populations of people again are impoverished. Um, the the uh, they're like large crowded camps in the United States of soldiers returning from that war or preparing to go to that war, living in relatively poor conditions, and the uh, it's a it's a it's a flu virus. Generally, um, the the flu virus doesn't have nearly the same same kind of effect. But in 1918, in those conditions, uh, is it, 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 it in part because it was a virus that was uh, that was meeting an immune naive population for that particular variant of the flu. It sweeps all through the United States, sweeps the earth. In fact, um, causing tremendous uh, death, uh, de- uh, tremendous death, especially to in, in, in high numbers to young people. Um, and uh, the U.S. response to it, you know, sort of in a varied way. Like they don't, we didn't have the vaccine, we didn't have any treatments. Um, what we did have was uh, sort of a, a, a sort of like the, the, the like you know sort of common sense approaches to fluids and and uh, you know sort of trying to trying to maintain um, maintain like a, a healthy lifestyles. Um, we also had uh, you know some places closed schools for a little while. Um, so they couldn't do it forever because it was 1918 and there's no Zoom school. Um, the, so the, there's some places um, tried quarantines. It really, and many places, some places tried masks. The, in fact, mm-hmm. masks were a very common thing in 1918 in San Francisco. There, there was, in fact, so so common that a anti-mask league uh, developed in protest to protest masks in 1918. Um, and scientists that were looking at this. Um, Afterwards, were sent, basically, they concluded that none of that stuff worked. Mm-hmm. Disease just had its way. Um, mm-hmm. uh, for a century after that, we didn't try the, that kind of approach to respiratory virus pandemics. For a century after that, the way we managed respiratory virus pandemics was focused protection of vulnerable people. Try to control the spread amongst the people that we knew would be most harmed by it. Generally, for you know these respiratory viruses, tends to be older people. Um, we keep we are so scared, of course, that the, uh, another virus like the 1918 flu will come around that will preferentially harm young people. Uh, but it didn't, not really. Uh, I mean, the other other viruses came that harm young people, HIV and uh, polio and so on. But th- no respiratory virus like this. Um, uh, and so we we uh, we we protected older people as best we could, and we developed the wisdom that if we disrupt society, we will end up harming the health of of uh, people much more than we will protect people from the disease that we th- we're trying to protect against. And so, you know, uh, when the when these when the respiratory virus pandemics happened, you know, like in the fifties and the sixties and the seventies, um, is as is as uh, as recently as two thousand nine. The H one the H one N one swine flu, um, the we didn't we didn't lock down. We we uh, developed countermeasures as best we could. We now have vaccines available. Um, uh, we 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 uh, devoted all of our efforts to protection of vulnerable older people. Um, uh, when when until the until the development of countermeasures, but we also had, had adopted this idea that public health should never panic people. You mentioned earlier the fear. That 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 was such a departure in in 2020 from how I I had grown accustomed to how public health would behave. In in my view, the, the use of public health authority to induce fear is an, a deeply unethical thing, and yet public health authorities did that. 
during the during this pandemic. Um, and I, you know, the the wisdom of of generations was that you don't do that because you're going to cause more harm than good. And I think we've seen uh, how true that wisdom was during this pandemic when we violated it. We'll get to all that in just a moment, I, I promise you. But I wanted to ask you this. I I grew up watching this show. My dad would have it on on repeat. It was actually about history. And one of the TV episodes was about cholera. And I believe it was in England. And there was a guy named Basiljet. And I'm not sure if, if you're able to share that story, if you remember it at all, because from my mind, I've got bits and pieces that are floating around, but cholera, is that still around today? And why was it such a big deal back then? And my other question in all that is, do we know the worst possible disease that has been in, in history? Um, so, yeah, so the, the history of, of cholera, uh, the, so the, the, let, me, let me share just a br- brief bit about that, what cholera is and what, what, what is such a bad disease, right? So it is, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's, it's a disease that uh, essentially causes diarrhea, intestinal, intestinal problems, it, it, it actually causes death at very, very high rates mm. if, if untreated or unmanaged. Um, the main way it causes death is by dehydration. Essentially, you you're the, you 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 uh, lose so many fluids from the intestinal effects of cholera until, uh, you know, that that you just can't uh, you 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 die from dehydration. It's still a leading cause of death in children worldwide. Wow! From um, and you know actually there are the, <laughs> you can you can treat it uh, if you have no money by a salt solution, a small a five cent packet of salt. Huh. Put in in good water can rehydrate some a kid, and then they won't die from it. And yet, countless children die from cholera. Um, it, over the centuries, cholera it, in the epidemiological um, um, has uh, in, in epidemiology has been a very very important disease, in part because um, there's a very famous incident involving a man named John Snow, uh, and I'm now blanking on the date, but I think it was like 18th century. Uh, uh, he he. Uh, is, not is from a, Game is, of Thrones, right? Not from Game of Thrones. J O H N, right? Um, he, I, I, but you know, you, I guess he lived in the frozen north. If you think of winter, of, of England that way, but whatever. Um, um, so he's he's a, so he, he he's kind of a, so if you just picture the time. Um, you know, there's it's, it's it's London. It's like the Enlightenment is happening in London. Like people, like you know, the, it's 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 a, it's a it's a really heady time for uh, for for um, for scientists and and, uh, and epidemiologists. He, and this is a man who likes to go around and collecting data. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, he's a man after my own heart. <laughs> he he, um, he uh, uh, and, and now when the cholera outbreak happens in London. People are scared, right? The poor can't leave, but like the you know rich, rich leave this can leave the city if they need to. Um, the 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 reigning theory is that cholera is caused by bad air, miasma, sewage. Yeah, yeah, miasma. That's a miasma theory, and so um, and there's like a big industry that grows up around uh, removing removing like pollution so that bad air doesn't happen. Uh, you know, just imagine like uh, the, the, these these firms that are convinced they they're, they're they are the science of the day, and they go around saying if you all you just need to invest trillions or whatever the the the, the denomination was back then, it wouldn't be trillions then, uh, millions maybe. Um, and if you if you just invest, we can get rid of our cholera from this. 
So Snow, what he he has an idea that co- the cholera is spread by water sources. Mm. He conducts this study where well he does he just like looks and said like just draws a map of London and goes around from house to house asking if you had cholera. And he just puts puts little X's. Every house that has cholera, he puts it on the map. And, and he finds this like cluster of cases around a single pump in Broad Street in London, Broad Street pump. Um goes and like yeah, and 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 like and he says, look, um, I don't know what's going on, but it's really clear that whoever's getting water from this pump is it, that's who's getting cholera, and mm-hmm. people who aren't getting water from this pump aren't getting cholera. So he says, well, just close this pump down, the cholera pandemic, this this little outbreak of cholera, will go away, and um, you know he, they do it and that works. They don't need to like clear out the bad air. Need need to make I mean, you know, it's good to make London not have sewage running running through the streets or whatever. But that's but that's that wasn't the key to ending that cholera outbreak. The key was identifying the source of cholera. Cholera is is uh, uh, it's basically fecal oral transmission. So if you put contaminated uh, feces in the water, which is which that pump had, and then you drink it, you are going to get cholera. You're likely to get cholera. Um, and no, no, they didn't know all that then. They just knew that this people who drank from that pump were getting cholera. Um, that and and uh, you know, so it's actually interesting. Like he was attacked viciously by the medical establishment. Mm. Um, the Lancet wrote nasty pieces about him. Um, you know, and you know, he he uh, he didn't really have a big impact in his lifetime. But afterwards, people realized that his genius. What he discovered was focus protection. Mm. Right, you focus your uh, attention on the places in in epidemiology where it will likely do the most good. You don't try to do a because if you try to if you try to like solve every problem all at once, you'll solve no problem. By by a better understanding the nature of the problem, you know how is this disease transmitted? Collecting data carefully and analyzing it with an open mind, he came to a conclusion that was absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's seen as the father of epidemiology. Wow. So I remember the, the name of the show. It was Seven Wonders of the Industrial World, I believe it is. And the reason why I remember Bazalgette, was he the designer for all the sewer systems? I think it was because they ended up, because of snow and trying to get rid of all the, you know, the bad air, as it were, they also yeah. came up with these major sewer systems because bad water as well. Am I getting that correct? Or I don't I actually don't know Basil Jet. No, this is my it's my my ignorance not knowing this history. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 but but I, if he if he was part, I mean, if he um, uh, if I'm trying to like just I, like a vague vague memory of him, but like my my understanding he was an engineer, hmm. and that he um, he did design sewage systems. So in that sense, he would have been an opponent of John Snow, I guess. Um, but these were both. I mean, like he's actually, I think, if I'm not uh, mistaken, remembered as a as a as a pioneer in public health, and appropriately so, because the kind of sanitation um, interventions that we've done over the last couple of centuries um, have have had a tremendous effect in in addressing um, uh, the, the, the 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 spread of infectious diseases. Tr- tremendously, they've had probably much more effect. Probably, there's certainly more effect than almost any doctor you ever, than doctors have. 
right? So the be- the best public health workers to this day are trash people who take care of trash, who clean, who are responsible for cleaning your water, right? Uh, that that's who actually delivers public health to you. How did John Snow die? I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't. I don't know. Don't remember. I'm a very bad historian. You can probably tell Jay. I, I just I, I have some I have some impressions, and I remember some stories, but I don't. I didn't, I'm not. I'm, I'm a. Uh, but I, I, uh, I, I let's let, let me. Can we? Why don't we find out? Let's find out. Let's let's find out together. I'm testing your yeah. memory here, Jay. Sorry about that. No, it's. <laughs> I just think it's fascinating. Like if we go back to the source, if if John Snow is the father of epidemiology and he was warning people about a really dangerous infectious disease that was not airborne, but it was born through water and and people were drinking. I think in in the BBC documentary, Bazaljet finds an eel, I think it is, and they were saying he actually admits that Snow was right all along. It wasn't airborne and the sewer systems, they weren't necessarily that beneficial or that great. If we just looked at the water supply and where it was coming from and, and having a clean water supply, he admitted he was wrong and he spent all this time, all this money focused on the wrong thing in the wrong area. <laughs> and as a result, they ended up getting these amazing sewer systems in London. <laughs> well, that's the, that, there's an irony there, right? So he was wrong about cholera, mm. um, but he did, a, did, did an intervention that had tremendous other possible, other benefits. Um, Snow was right about cholera. I just looked it up, by the way. He uh, Snow died uh, in doing research on anesthetics. So he was like exposed to, you know, like coliform. I mean, just just like all these like nasty chemicals. He died doing research. He, he died. <laughs> oh bugger! <laughs> I know. Well, I feel you know, like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be willing to like uh, sacrifice for your craft. Yeah, taking all the risks, right? I mean, have you ever been exposed to any of these nasty illnesses along your research? Well, when I, so I'm a, I am a research scientist. I don't do, I don't see patients. Um, I did, when I went to medical school, I was, I did see patients, um, you know, as a medical student does. Yep. Um, and, uh, so I, I was, I did a, a rotation in India, for instance, where I was exposed to leprosy, uh, okay. patients with leprosy. I, I've been, I've been, you know, in, in rooms with tuber, tuberculosis patients, uh, again, all, all while I was in medical school. Um, I've been, um, uh, I have to say, like the kind of research I do, it, it involves data analysis. So the most, uh, like most risky thing nowadays that I face is like too much sed- sedentary time, uh, <laughs> rather than, rather than anything uh, anything like uh, John Snow faced, where he's walking around London facing you know bad air, I guess. The disease of boredom. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, like it's it is still pretty exciting. I mean, like you you study a data set and you have some insight into how. Uh, how diseases spread, um, mm. wh- what you might be able to do to fix things. What, like, what you learn, um, you 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 learn the two things that people didn't understand were causally related to each other, or causally related. You think about the the side effects of interventions uh, in ways that people didn't understand before, and you potentially can change the world. So it's not like it's. I mean, I don't I don't regret. It's, I, 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 the thing is that you have to go where your insights are and where your talents are. And uh, I like math. I like statistics. I like, um, I like this kind. Of, I like you know these epidemiological and economic models. Um, and I think um, uh, th- that's where my I, I've always thought as my, as my comparative advantage. So I have to go. I have to go there. Um, I mean, God forbid, if my comparative advantage was like you know I don't know uh, studying chloroform, I'd probably probably dead of chloroform poisoning by now. 
all the risks involved with that. My goodness. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny because growing up, I wasn't that interested in science. I hated math. I didn't do well in science at all. And the older I get, the more interested I am in all this stuff, diseases, how things work. I've, I've found that my brain has evolved quite effectively, I think, over a period of time. And I was like kicking myself not that long ago going, Jay, you wasted so much time as a kid hating on this stuff. You should have been interested in it because if you only knew what you'd be doing later on in life, you'd be more interested and more fascinated. You'd you'd sit down and actually focus a lot. Hey, harder. you're a young man. You still have plenty of time left. I, I would not regret any of that. You, you've, I'm sure you'll bring interesting insights as a result of your whatever you spent your youth doing. I certainly try. I mean, I was more of a history nerd and history buff, but I, it's funny, I tend to forget a lot of history-related material now, and I tend to remember more science and math-related stuff. Maybe my brain has shifted. I don't know. <laughs> it's weird. Um, well, I, th I think there's. I think that 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 bridging of those two kinds of cultures is really. It's a really powerful thing. Like I think one of the one of the major problems I've seen during this pandemic is you see the the, te the technically minded person who can uh, develop a, a, a sophisticated mathematical model with certain assumptions about the way people behave, mm. but they don't really understand how people behave. They don't even understand that they don't understand, and they apply. Uh, they run their model. It looks it looks like science. It looks like really interesting, but they don't. They have they have no sense of how the interventions that they're modeling. At, if when Im implemented in the real world will have effects far outside of the the things that they've the narrow set of things they've considered um i think in interjecting history and uh, and, uh, and humanities into scientific discussions um actually has a tremendously positive effect it keeps us humble uh, yeah. it reminds us that there's more to life than the, the than the models that we're looking at i think they both play a rather they're symbiotic right you need history in order to be able to understand certain elements, especially when it comes to the present day. If we've got a virus today, we can look at all the mistakes of the past generations and look at what they did and what they did wrong or what they did right. And then we can transfer that into, I guess, present day and see whether or not that would work, but also come up with new solutions and use our brains more effectively, let's say, and common sense and rationale to move things along a lot better. And we've also got technology now to help us out, or they sh it should be used to help us out, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I, I think it's just how we've got to merge them both together and, and use them both to effectively make a better society and, and, and learn. And hopefully we do learn from the past. Yeah, I mean, there's a human aspect to every science. It's done by humans. And, it's, and of course, the... Uh, the products of science, including the knowledge, are uh, are knowledge of humans. Products that humans use, people use, right? So uh, it's not uh, like people sometimes think of science as like this, you know, like uh, uh, the way that uh, that that that, Sp that Spock on Star Trek, you know, the Vulcan, uh, a emotional, uh, and and exactly that guy. Um, but, but you know, it, it science isn't like that. Like it's not. It, it it's filled with emotion and drama and 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 uh, its power stems from that. Even actually, even on Star Trek, the whole the whole reason why Spock was interesting was that he actually wasn't a emotional, mm. right? The, the like his you could see you know he's half half human, 
that's supposed to be a weakness. He considers it a weakness, but it's not a weakness, right? It's his, it's his great strength, and this makes him an interesting character. Um, I, I mean, I think science is like that. Like science, uh, out there's no there's no like platonic ideal of science outside of outside of how humans use it, how how humans engage in it. Uh, uh, you know, it's there's human stories all all across it. Um, and uh, you know, if you if you forget that, you're gonna you're gonna essentially undercut. Uh, the the power of science, or or and probably this is even more dangerous, misuse it in ways that harm people. Mm. I want to go back a little bit and ask you: Do we know what in history has been the worst ever recorded disease? And then oh, I'd say smallpox. Smallpox. There's, there's, there's no question. I mean, it's called it's it, it, throughout history. I mean, hundreds of millions of people. It wouldn't be it wouldn't surprise me to kill you know on the on the order of hundreds of millions of people. It's it's gone. It's 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 the most uh, it's the only human infectious disease that we've intentionally eradicated. Wow! Uh, and it took a century for us to do it. Uh, it's only recently, like I think 1979 was the last case of smallpox ever recorded on the, on on Earth. Um, and it took a century of effort with a with fantastic vaccine. Uh, the man I think most responsible in the 20th century for its eradication is a man named Donald Henderson, who's a, I think the 20th century's best uh, best uh, epidemiologist. And uh, I, I mean, like on, on certainly on par with Jon Snow, uh, as as a as as a, as a tremendous figure, a towering figure in epidemiology. He helped organize the world response to smallpox, um, and you know, like basically the the tools were vaccinations. But then toward the end, when the outbreaks were happening in places where there wasn't you know remote areas of the world where there wasn't vaccination coverage, in the midst of wars, he would like try to negotiate with countries to try to get teens sent in um they had, they had a strategy of like whenever they would identify a case local case they would fly in um vaccinate the person uh, all the family members people other contacts they use like techniques that actually are pretty effective for smallpox ring vaccination um but uh contact tracing all this all these tools that are very effective in smallpox um, but uh, and they even also quarantine, of course, the person who had smallpox, right? That, um, it turns out, and so those and and but applied in a focused way on the set of people that were getting smallpox locally, not a not a, a global let's let's shut down the whole world until smallpox disappears. Mm. Um, so uh, you know, it's 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 it's, it, it's interesting in history to see these themes come up over and over again. Sometimes they're applied wisely, wisely, uh, and they result in fantastic outcomes like the eradication of smallpox. And sometimes they, uh, like during COVID, they're not applied so wisely. Yes. Well, I promise we will get into that, but I wanted to ask you before, I know we keep sort of alluding to the whole COVID thing. We're getting there. <laughs> um, how does Christianity, more specifically, or I guess the idea of, um spirituality how does that play into epidemiology and science as a whole that's a complicated question jay um and, and i i think um you know i think we live now in an age where that has this false idea that uh that the faith and science are at odds with one another that if you if you have um a faith in uh that, that that there is a creator god that 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 automatically makes you unable to reason scientifically mm -hmm. that idea is is ahistorical in fact if you if you look at the enlightenment it comes up out of a place where 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 
faith is like the 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 it's like water like it's the it's how how everybody believes thinks and acts including the most important prominent scientists of the age you know people like isaac newton for instance was it was it he was very much driven by his christianity mm-hmm. blaise pascal in france um you know if you go down down through the list of people who uh in, who, who sort of made modern science like the progenitors of modern science for them faith was a tremendously important part of it i mean and a part of it has to do with there's a philosophical thing right so if i'm to do science the purpose of science is for me to understand the order of the material universe well how can i have any uh faith at all that i'm capable of or, of understanding material it's a complicated thing it's so complicated that maybe it's possible maybe no human can understand it that's one response to this complicated reality we face it takes faith to say look if if the universe was created by a creator who who has a mind and has an order and isn't trying to trick us right that's that for instance what a christian might think then it's possible for me to apply my reason who's also also created by that same creator to understand the universe it's a it's a so the so faith then plays a symbiotic role with the the goal of and the and the actions of science our actions because we're made by a creator that that isn't unreasonable isn't like trying to trick us that makes us so that we can also reason are so that so then that means that we are capable of of using methods scientific methods to understand what the universe is going to be or else other are just doing science for, on, on at an impossible task you need some faith faith that my actions as a scientist are going to lead to understanding in order to do science at all i think and so it's not surprising that the history of science starts in places where this faith is actually you know is quite strong it's also for me when i think about it trying to understand reason and rationale as a concept and i'm going if i'm trying to understand both of those things where in the world do they come from how in the world are humans able to reason rationally for example with another human being and when we're talking about science i think both of them have got to exist you can't just have science and just say science exists but reason and rationale does not so yeah. i think really good i i was i was just yeah you you can go i think you're going to say something more interesting than me <laughs> <laughs> I, I doubt it, Jay, but I, I, cause you, you were, you were on a roll, but I, I gotta say, so, so, so like one of the things that always has always puzzled me about this idea that science and reason uh, that that science and faith were at odds. Um, it like, so for instance, like, let's just ask what science is like the premise of science, right? The premise of science is that, is that, uh, when, when I'm, when I'm studying a material phenomenon, I'm not allowed, and this is an axiom of science. I'm not allowed to make a recourse to non-material phenomena. I can't just say there are like these gremlins pulling down on your on your shoes and that's why you gravity works or your feet. Right? Yeah. That's a non-material phenomenon, un- unobservable, unfalsifiable. It's not science. Um and that's an axiom. When I when I make uh, a scientific claim, I have to start from physical axioms, material axioms, not non-material ones. 
Okay, well, that I mean, I think that's reasonable. It's an incredibly powerful t- technique of, of 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 understanding the world. It's produced all kinds of of leaps in our our, our understanding of how the world uh, the material world works, and have resulted in all kinds of of technologies that we find tremendously useful. Couldn't do without, mm-hmm. you know, vaccines among them. Um, but can you use that system then to conclude that there are no such things? At, that that they're only material reality, that there is no non-material reality. Can you, for instance, prove, use it to prove that we have no soul? Mm. Well, no, because you started with the axiom that there is only material explanations. That axiom produces science, tremendously useful. Yeah. But if you had a different axiom, you might lead to different conclusions. You can't use that axiomatic system that excludes non-material causes to then conclude that there are no non-material causes. Um, so it's 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 a category error to say that science excludes faith. Science in its own realm is tremendously powerful, but it doesn't say that there are no non-material causes. It assumes that there aren't, but it doesn't, it, it, so you can't thereby conclude that there aren't. It's like, it's like you know, you're, you're, you're essentially assuming the conclusion when you say that. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas, so so what that means is that is that, you know, I'm not saying you necessarily have to be faithful or believe um, in a creator, but but uh, there isn't anything in science that says there isn't a creator, and and conversely, I very strongly believe that faith, properly understood, allows science to exist, because we because it if if it, if it, if I have this faith, all, all scientists have it, like all scientists believe that their work is going to produce a better understanding of ordered reality. If they thought reality was so unordered that, that their work wouldn't produce it, well, then why are they doing science in the first place? Yeah. So, there, so that's what I mean by it's a symbiotic relationship, um, not a antagonistic one, as we've heard, uh, I think, countless times in, in, um, you know, in, 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 you know, in the recent decades. Well, I look at it from this point of view as well, just um, going along with what you were saying, which I think is, is brilliant. How would you go about proving in a tangible setting a person's soul? How would you showcase that to anyone without the faith element to it, without the belief that this is in fact real? If you're not allowed to question that, which is fundamentally the uh, role of science to be able to question things and to learn and to figure things out, if you're just going, I'm a scientist, but soul doesn't exist because I don't have tangible proof, then you're not really a scientist because you, you've just said that this, in fact, is not actually real and you haven't dug a little deeper. You haven't asked any further questions. So when I've seen, you know, you've got these um, evolutionary biologists and, you know, these atheists that come out and say that God doesn't exist because science claims it doesn't exist. We don't have any tangible proof or ev- any evidence. Well, how do you know? Like, what is your reason behind you, in fact, saying that it doesn't exist? <laughs> it's just, to me, that it's not really doing effective science, in my opinion. It's like they're denying real science in that case. That's my yeah. my viewpoint. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, that's an interesting idea. So, like, the idea, um, uh, it, it, like, it, it reminds me of this principle in science, right? So, if you want to, if you want, in science to prove the the 
the lack of existence of something. Like you want to see, you want to prove that something doesn't exist. You're going to have a hard time in science, yeah. right? You, it doesn't exist until you identify, until until someone finds it, right? It, 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 you can say, oh, well, my theory implies that this thing doesn't exist. But that doesn't mean how your theory is right. There's not there, if the theory is wrong, the thing could exist, right? So, uh, like I, you know, in in uh, I'll give you examples of this in in um, in science, our, uh, in the science of genetics, um, genetic crossover genes that the crossover in meiosis. Um, that uh, that idea, um, you know, before it was known, the, the idea was that you couldn't you couldn't have um, you know if if if, if two uh, Drosophila flies mate, and you, what, what they have red and curly wings, and and one other has like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, black black eyes and red 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 eyes and black curly wings, and other eyes has black eyes and straight wings. That they would uh, that that they, that their kids would inherit the, the traits together, or, or or rather independently. And yet, often you see traits inherited together, and very rarely you see my my uh, like crossover events that would then uh, break that bond. Mm. It's very famous result in genetics that that there that the very rare crossover event was discovered by a a fly that shouldn't have been there, if the, the old theory was right. Um, so what am I getting at? I'm getting at that the non-existence of something, a soul or something. If you if you have a theory that says that that it can't exist, that's not the same thing as proving it doesn't exist. Yeah. Much easier in science to prove something exists than to prove doesn't something doesn't exist. Um, it, you know, you you it, it, you prove it exists by by showing it. Yeah. Like here here it is. Um, but the question then is like, okay, uh, from a, from a by an atheist or someone might be to to a, a, a theist say, look, uh, prove that a soul exists. But I, again, so now the question is, how should the proof go about? Mm. Right, it's not enough to say that I can't. Uh, I'm not allowed to prove. I'm not. I can't prove that 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 it it doesn't exist using scientific methods because science isn't built for proving non-existence. I want proof before I believe. Right? Then I have to say, like, okay, well, now we're not talking about science. I, 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 science has as an axiom that there is no non-material causes. A soul is a non-material uh, uh, cause if there is one. Right. Mm. Um, and so I'm not going to be able to use scientific proof to prove something that science excludes as an axiom. I'm also also not going to be able to use science to prove that it doesn't exist. If a soul exists or doesn't exist, I'm, we're going to have to discuss it using other methods. Which I think that there comes the theological debate, doesn't it? In that instance. Well, I mean, you know, that's then then you have to like say, okay, what do you what do you mean by other methods? Yeah. How can I know that there are um, not some some non-material things? I, I I'd say like I think we all really know. We all really do know. Like so, why do I love my mother and my father? Why do I? Why would I sacrifice myself for some someone else, even if I don't know them? Mm -hmm. Why do I give to charity? Why do I? Why do I? Why do I act in? Why? Why? Why does my conscience tell me things that uh, to do things that I think? Uh, I ought to do, even though it's probably bad for me to do them in some, some narrow material sense. Um, there are like some deep mysteries. And, you know, you can have scientific uh, uh, theories to try to address at least parts of those mysteries, but you can't really get at the full of it. We all know that. So if we all know that, if you know that that's true, 
that must mean that there are non-material things that we have to reason about. And we may then need different methods and scientific methods to reason about those things. Do you ever think that even if they were to prove it by science and and hold it up tangibly, here is evidence that we've got to solve, do you still think that people would actually believe it or deny it anyway? <laughs> I don't think it's possible actually to prove it by science. So I, I guess I, I would argue with the premise. Um, I, I mean, I agree with the atheists in that sense, um, that 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 you can't actually use science to prove those things. Yeah, that it's a category error. I completely agree with that. Um, I, and I, th- I think, um, in fact, a lot of people who are, are faithful have, uh, I think, have been, have, I, I think, like, by, by trying to use science to prove something that it can't prove, have done harm to the cause of faith. Yeah. Uh, it's we set ourselves on a, an impossible task. Um, the, 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 my, my view is that if you, um, if you accept what science is, it's beautiful and worthwhile and powerful and in its own right, but it's not everything. And trying to pretend like it's everything is a, is a mistake at the same time, trying to, uh, and, 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 and that mistake then, uh, impoverishes you. Now, atheist friends of mine will say, like, look, that's not true. I'm leading a full, happy life, and I don't disagree with them. They're leading a full, happy life. But I do believe that they are impoverished in ways that they can't recognize. Well, they so won't agree with God. me because they're, 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 they're talking about – I'm talking about things that they don't believe exist. So, yeah. you know, it's an impasse. It's hard to – when you're speaking – I haven't actually had any atheists on, on the show before because I need to – get up to speed, I guess, myself with everything that they believe in, so to speak. <laughs> Although I've been rather interested in in listening to Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens just from the perspective of what they believe in and why they believe it, even though I believe rather differently to they do. I think it's just for me as trying to be an intellectual thinker and trying to use reason and rationale in my life, I can't just go, oh, because God said so. I've got to be able to prove it in some way, shape, or form with a logical consensus. And I think um, before I would just go, you're wrong. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. But now I'm going, well, why? Why would they be wrong? You know, how can I show to others that they are in fact wrong? Let's have a conversation. So I need to get up to the speed with that. I don't think I'm I'm smart enough yet <laughs> well i don't know jay i mean i think i don't i don't i'm not a i don't i'm not particularly militaristic about this and i don't believe that my mission is to go and disprove uh an atheist from the the way i mean i'm just i don't i, th- I think I, we are really we're in we're all in the same boat we're like this mm-hmm. face this very complicated reality and uh let's go learn from each other let's reason with each other um, you may reason from a different premise than me, but we hopefully, even though we reason from different premises, can learn learn things from each other. That so you're, you know, I, I uh, uh, my very favorite atheist is is uh, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Mm. Uh, I, I think I think the um, there's some bad history with with what, how Nietzsche was used, but if you just take him at his word, his goal was to try to understand um, the source of our morality. You know his. Uh, why are we? Why? Why do we believe? Uh, in you know, in as 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 uh, in a society that we sh- that caring for the weak and the poor are, are a good thing. Um, and uh, the, the 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 
examination he gave to that question led him to this idea that um, really it's 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 this it's Christian morals that have been that have imported over that that have put in place this idea that it's good to do charity for the poor, the weak. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then he developed his own philosophical system saying, well, what would a moral system look like if you didn't ad- adopt this Christian idea of, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth, that, 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 the, that, the, 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 the children are, are the most val- you know, are, are, are valuable. Um, you know, if you didn't adopt the sort of the, 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 the key Christian moral ideas, uh, this is apart from Christian Christian religion. This is Christian morality. I think but they're they're linked, but they're not. They're not. You could you could take one without the other in in principle, I guess. Um, I think in practice, hard. Uh, but but then now you have. Um, but then you then then he built up this entire system that where um, if you jettison Christian morality, you could he replaces it with something he calls will to power. Right, this idea of like the self made person creating their own moral structure. Uh, essentially from new from brand new it's a very dangerous idea i think but like but that that kind of that kind of like um reasoning is a tremendously honest right it's i like him because he's saying let's ask what happens to our moral systems when we when we divorce ourselves from christianity which is what he wanted to do which is what he did very famously said god is dead yeah right so if you believe that then um then you have to you have to ask how should i be what how should i act if if uh, theistic systems pr- provide an answer at least in part like there's of course uh dispute among different theistic systems about that and a lot of reasoning but like the, there's an answer that you can get from different theistic systems well what do you what what is the answer to that question when you don't have that and i think nietzsche provides probably the most coherent answer to that i find it particularly ugly but that's you know that's that's me I just wanted to, I, think, I love the honesty of it. I, I do too. And I just want to clarify, like I'm not out to disprove anybody at all. Like I, I'm, for me, I'm a very curious individual, but when it comes down to certain topics, I don't feel like I'm confident enough to go in and even have a debate. Let's say if it even got to that point, uh, I'm more I want to ask as many questions as I possibly can to try and figure out why you believe in that side. Why are you an atheist to begin with? And then obviously go from there. <laughs> but um, like I mentioned, I don't think I'm smart enough yet to 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 do that. So maybe one day, Jay. Maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I think these are one of these things where like you just have these conversations over a pint of beer or something and 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 you you uh you 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 end up being great friends even though you disagree about everything. Yeah, it doesn't need to be recorded at all. Like I think at the moment the camera turns on, everyone just shuts shuts down and it's like, oh no, it's, <laughs> that's there forever, so to speak. But um anyway, I, I'm really grateful for your work, Jay, and, and I'm really enjoying this conversation. I wanted to switch gears a little bit to the whole COVID stuff. Now, we could spend ages, and I mean ages talking about this, but you're well known for going against the main sort of narrative, going against lockdowns. Would you be able to share why you went against lockdowns? Uh, So it's primarily motivated by two 
Uh, okay, so why has two, has two multiple meanings? So I'll just tell you the, the the proximate reason, which is it has to do with two scientific facts. And we can go, but maybe deeper if you're if you're interested into like you're asking me about my maybe my psychological state. Um, I don't know. Given the conversation, the way it's gone. Um, I, so, but like so, from a scientific point of view, my my analysis is based on two facts, and I think everybody agrees with these facts. There isn't a single person that disagrees, um, at least not a single reasonable person. Fact one: there is a very steep age gradient in the risk of bad outcomes from infection. Mm-hmm. Um, the, now, it's not it's true that y- young people and children can be harmed by this disease, but it's much, 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 much less likely than an old person. Um, and uh, I did a study, as I said uh, at the beginning of the conversation, that on of how widespread the disease was in Santa Clara County, California, in, in April of 2020. But a similar study in May, in in April of 2020 in LA County, uh, they all reached the same conclusion that the that there's this very steep age gradient in mortality. Um, uh, that, that 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 and you find basically this everywhere. Eighty percent of the deaths are people over the age of 65. <laughs> Fact one. Fact two. The lockdowns are harmful. The lockdowns are harmful not just to the economics uh, well-being, economic well-being of people, but also to the the uh, the social well-being, the mental well-being, the the, the the physical well-being of people, and particularly for vulnerable people, for the poor, for the working class, for uh, for children. Lockdowns are a tremendous disaster. Right. So just let's just focus on children. We um, in many, many places, we close schools for a very long time. And the evidence is coming out now that uh, our our children are harmed by this, where uh, their their learning is year a year or more behind where it should be. And it's not like you can fix it. That time has passed. You can try to address it. We should. But you're you're always going to have this. There's going to be a generational deficit. For the kids that were in school, or I guess out of school during the pandemic, there's a social science literature that goes back decades that, that has documented the importance of continuous schooling during youth. If you if you skip school for even relatively short periods of time, it can have long lifelong consequences, where you lead shorter, poorer, less healthy lives. Mm-hmm. That's a well documented social science literature. One estimate. Early in the pandemic, applying this literature to the U.S. lockdowns in March of 2020, March and April 2020 for the school closures, estimated that we that the U.S. cost its kids, our kids, five and a half million life years. You know, it's it's um, and it's worse in poor countries like in Uganda, four and a half. Uh, they they closed schools for two years on the basis of of this crazy. You know, have to slow the spread by doing social distancing. They closed schools for two years. Many of those kids, you know, tens of millions of kids, um, they had no school. It's not like they had Zoom school. They just had no school for two years. Mm. And four and a half million of them never came back to school after two years away. We created a generational inequality. We, we, of course, we were already unequal society before, but we, we've, we've exploded that inequality and catapulted into the next generation in ways that that are impossible to fathom. Um, like just the, the, the extent we, we knew it was coming. We knew we were doing, and we knew we were doing it at the time. Um, a hundred of the economic dislocation caused by lockdowns, according to an estimate by the world bank in I think April or May, 2020 was that we would send a hundred million people into dire poverty. 
$2 a day or less of income. Well, what are the consequences of that? The health consequences of that are tremendous. Again, shorter, poorer lives. Yeah. Um, so fact one, age gradient in mortality risk from COVID infection. In fact, two, uh, this 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 huge ubiquitous uh, harm from the lockdown. The right solution then is to is to is is focus protection. Focus our efforts on the people that are highest risk from the disease. Protecting them as best we can with the technologies we have, developing technologies as rapidly as we can to to protect them better. Older people, and for the rest of the populations, lift the lockdowns. Let them let them participate in society as they as as they see fit. Don't panic them. Allow people to participate because it's more healthy for them to participate than to not. Uh, and even for the older population, the idea isn't to like throw them in concentration camps. The idea is to allow them, uh, uh, give them the resources that they would need so that they can figure out how best to protect uh, to, to, to 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 protect. Uh, to be protected, um, you know. So, for, uh, just just to give you some ideas, we included in the Great Barrington. This, by the way, is the Great Barrington Declaration I've just described to you. Um, the, uh, the, the some ideas we gave in the Declaration. You know, we we organized societies, developed societies to deliver food to for free for well-off young people, Uber Eats or whatever. Um, why not organize societies to deliver food for free during times of high spread to older people? Uh, give sabbatical pay so that older workers don't have to work when there's high spread of the disease. Um, sick pay so that people can stay at home. Poor people can stay at home when they're when they not feel forced to go to work when they're when they're um, uh, when they're sick. Uh, why why not use our resources? This is before the before the vaccine um, to protect older people. If we'd done that, for instance, in New York, for instance, the the governor of New York in 2020, early 2020, sent COVID infected patients into nursing homes. Why would he do that? Because focus protection wasn't his strategy. His strategy was protecting protecting hospitals. So take patients out of hospitals, send them to the nursing homes. It makes perfect sense if your goal is protecting hospitals. It makes no sense if your goal is protecting people from dying from this disease. Right. So. Uh, and then after the vaccines came, very rapidly vaccinate the, the 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 most vulnerable people everywhere on earth, no matter where they're found, right? Because uh, the vaccine, uh, we can talk about the vaccine in a bit, but like, but we knew what we we knew enough about the vaccine in 2020, in late 2020, to know that it was very likely to to reduce the risk of mortality from this disease. So use it on the people who are most likely to die if they're infected. Right? Yeah. That seems like the most reasonable thing to do. Um, those those were the ideas. That's that's that was the, that's what I was advocating through the whole pandemic. The lockdowns. I don't know if you heard too much about what happened in Sydney, and then in Melbourne. Melbourne was literally named the most lockdown state in the entire world. That is not, that is not a good thing to have on your resume. And now the people of Melbourne are actually paying for it quite significantly. Because the premier, Dan Andrews, we call him Dictator Dan, decided to spend, spend, spend. And now all of the poor taxpayers are now having to repay all of what he had spended during that entire period of time. They don't have a great deal of money now because unemployment is at its highest in that particular state, mainly because no one wants to work anymore. No one wants to go back to work. And I think the lockdown considerably let's, you know, give all these people that are now quite out of work, let's give them all these 
payments as a relief, but who's actually paying for it all? It's the taxpayer now as well. So all these people are going, why should I need to go back to work? I'm just going to go off everybody else's, it's actually going to work. I'm going to go off what the government's giving me. But it doesn't work like that. And now the mental health side of things is another issue. Kids are losing social skills. They're depressed. They're miserable. It's I don't know. I don't even know what in the world they were thinking at the time. I think they were just going. The first lockdown was like, I think I was a little bit naive, right? You know, fair enough. We need to try and stop the spread, but we didn't stop the spread. It kept going, even though there weren't so many people out and about. And I was going, what's happening here? It's like, if there's no one really out and about, why is the disease spreading like wildfire? They're telling us, Wash our hands, you know, social distance. I mean, social distancing is an infamous term now, right, Jay? <laughs> and then mask up. They were telling us that masking was really, really effective. But even when you did mask up, you still got the disease. So it wasn't effective. And now the media is going, the ones that said that we we're anti-maskers or anti-vaxxers and all those sort of deal, now the media is going along with it and it's all changed and i'm going on a little bit of a tangent here uh, no i th i think i think the australian experience is so interesting um so i actually had the i had the privilege of visiting uh, melbourne and sydney last summer and i wandered around the melbourne cbd they had like they actually had little stickers in 2022 encouraging people to come back to the cbd because all the all of the stores that had closed down because of the loss of business um 270 days i think of lockdown in, in melbourne um Nuts. where you weren't even allowed to go outside for more than you know by you, you could go for like an, uh, an hour or something for exercise in an hour uh, and then and, and if you were seen with someone else you could be arrested i saw a video from sydney where uh that the, they were they were essentially beating young young children who weren't masked the yeah. police um, I mean, it was just a brutal application of police power to to to, impo to impose lockdowns. But it's okay. So I want to like, the the Australian experience is so different than the American experience. I think it's worth just giving you my my just a few minutes of my view. So because I think I think if you if you go through this, so the, the lockdowns in the U.S. utterly failed to stop the disease spread. Right? That we we locked down in the middle of March 2020, the disease still spreads. Huge waves of cases um in the, the, the that 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 was spring then more cases waves of cases in other places that are locked down in the spring in the summer in the south um and then again in the winter uh, 2020 a huge set of 2020 2021 a huge wave of cases right um the lockdowns if you want if thought of them as like stopping the disease from going or making the disease go away it didn't work in 2020 Australia had the either the for, fortune or misfortune, I don't know how you want to characterize it, of when the disease arrived in March of 2020 on, to Australia. So let's say March or probably a little earlier, probably arrived, but like let's say March 2020, um, you had you were in your summer. We were in our winter. The, the disease spreads more easily in the winter, in the winter than it does in the summer. Um, when you locked down in, in in March 2020, it it probably did stamp the disease out. 
it hadn't really spread very far. And, and it was the atmospheric conditions were such that it wasn't going to spread very easily. So it looked like in the summer of 2020 that Australia had done the right thing. It had locked down hard and gotten rid of the disease. I still remember writing to some Australian colleagues who were triumphantly saying, Jay, why are you against lockdowns? It worked here. We have a normal life here. Um, and uh, <laughs> you're laughing. I can tell, Jay, because uh, I, guess, I mean, I just I just have to set I set this up with like the right. I, I just I think this is what happened, right? Yeah. Um, um, you know, please correct me. I wasn't living in Australia at the time. I was just I was an outsider looking in. Now you're um, right. You're right. <laughs> um, and then and then the disease came back to Australia. You 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 close international borders so that even people who were living uh, expats living outside the, of Australia couldn't go back home to bury their family family members that died uh if you did if you didn't manage to come back you would you would have to have like in New Zealand you had a lottery you weren't only i mean you, if you didn't manage to come back it would cost you you know from the United States tens of thousands ten thousand dollars for a flight um and then you'd have to sit in a hotel room for two weeks while you while you quarantine to be negative uh, I even saw stories where people weren't allowed to cross you know from Sydney to Melbourne to go be with family right so that so that internal travel was closed down. Um, whenever there was a single case, you would get this tremendous lockdown. Dan Andrews, I mean, I remember watching some of his his video, uh, his like press conference. He just looked like he was a man on a mission, mm. right? And the only thing that it. mattered to him was COVID. Mm. Can't let a single COVID case into the, into this. And when there's one, you want to like root it out. These, and anyone who got COVID was like, you know, like a, a social miscreant, like a bad guy. Um, I remember this one video, I think it was out of Australia, this quarantine, uh, this person who was in quarantine, he was in this elevator escaping. And it was like an all, all, all points bulletin to like, go find the guy that had, that had escaped. You're a criminal. Yeah. I think literally. Right. Um, so, um, you had this like draconian lockdown that that caused all the harms you're talking about. Uh, people skipped, people died at home with heart attacks in Australia. People died. Um, uh, the mental health consequences. I, I mean, I, I have personal friends who have whose whose who's children committed suicide in Australia, right? The mental health consequences. I mean, it happened in the U.S. too, by the way. This is not. not, not I don't mean to um, say Australia is unique in this. Wherever lockdowns happen, that happens. It causes depression. It causes anxiety. It causes deep mental health problems. It it's, it leads to uh, drug overdoses, a whole kinds of other pathologies, um, and that happened in Australia, right? Um, and then in then the 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 vaccine arrives. The whole goal of the lockdown strategy, if you're going to make a case for it, was to get to a place where we have a, an effective technology to protect you against the disease. Now you have one, but the Australian this is this arrives in December 2020. The Australian government um, and the provincial governments they spend the next nine months messing around doing with like trying to get the contracts in place with almost no urgency whatsoever to get the vaccine. And the, you know, in a way you, it was, it was like the success of zero COVID in 2020 that led to this lackadaisical attitude toward the vaccine. Well, what do you need a vaccine for if the disease is not here? Right. But the entire uh, Australian population is immune naive. Mm. 
disease hasn't spread. It's not like in the U.S. or or Europe or 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 you know Latin America where the disease is spread. And now you don't have an immune naive population. You have a lot of people who have seen the disease and recovered. Um, you now have a lot more vaccinated people, especially starting in December 2020. Um, instead, the Australian government just sat there and. During that time, you had lockdown after lockdown after lockdown because you can't stop the disease from spreading. You cannot, even if you're an island in the South Pacific, you can't stop the disease from spreading. It's going to come back. You have to you have to like close yourself away like a bub bubble boy forever if you want to not ever get this disease. It's not possible. Um, and you're doing multiplying the economic and uh, and other damage from the lockdown. Hundreds of days long after the vaccine became available. What excuse was there for that? Why not buy vac enough vaccine doses to, to protect all the older people that you can, and then buy, buy, you buy more to like for people who voluntarily would want that they're younger because they're scared, and then open up? That mm. could have happened. You could have been open by February 2021. We could have been. Yeah. And then, and then Omicron hits. And whatever possibility there was of stopping the disease, it becomes laughable. It's obviously not possible at, at all anymore. And the and the policy shifts overnight without any any notice from the government that oops, we were wrong. Oh, sorry, we made this mistake. No, that's just all of a sudden it went from one case leads to uh, tens, uh, you know, uh, dozens of days of lockdown, draconian lockdown, people locked in their apartment buildings, to well, okay, we're done. No, we're just not going to talk about it. Right? I think that is my view. Of, at least, and this is an outsider view, so you please correct me, Jay, if I'm wrong. But um, that was my view of the Australian policy. Seems like a failure, uh, basically on every front. You and if you look at on the head, yeah. I mean, and if you look at uh, if you compare all cause excess deaths throughout the pandemic in Australia versus Sweden, which followed a much uh, more uh, reasonable policy, I think. No lockdowns. Uh, they kept schools open for any, everyone under 16 through the whole pandemic, basically. Um, uh, the, the, no, no, no forced school closures, no business closures. Churches were allowed to meet, you know, so on. Um, their all-cause excess deaths through the pandemic are lower than Australia and have been, I think, since the middle of 2021. Mm. Um you have you have um I, I actually represented a church in um oh, no a synagogue in sydney i, I, th I think it was in 2020 i think yeah it was 2021 and the synagogue uh they wanted to celebrate high holy days i was a i was an expert witness in the case um and what they what they wanted to do is they wanted to blow the 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 there's like that horn that i don't know what it's called the shafar or something yeah um and um they, you know, it's part of their it's part of their religious celebration that they do. Um, and they were they went the public health told them they're gonna they told public health they're gonna hold this this ceremony. It was a very uh, very, very important and meaningful ceremony for for uh, religious Jews. Um, and the public health told them, no, you're not allowed to do this. Well, they said, okay, well, I'll tell you what, well, the disease doesn't really spread outside. We'll hold the thing outside. No, you can't do it. Uh, we'll we'll uh, make sure that everyone is social distance six six ten feet away and wearing masks. No, you can't do it. Um, you know they're bending over backwards to to be able to appease public health, but public health says no. You can't 
you can't worship in the in the way that's that that's meaningful to you, that's important to you. I mean, uh, it's a fundamental right, right, of free peoples to be able to worship freely, mm. and yet the government of Australia is saying no, you can't do it in the in the guise of public health. Um, the lawsuit goes to um, the High Court in Sydney, and they wouldn't even listen to my testimony about the relative safety of doing this in the in, the, in these conditions, um, and. The judge says to the to the the synagogue and the and there's this religious community, the Jewish religious community, that if public health says it's dangerous, then you don't have free free your 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 relig- free freedom of religion. That that the public health can abrogate those basic civil rights as it wants without having having to having to justify itself in court with like with with scientific facts or whatever. It can just do it. Um, that I think, unfortunately, is the state in Australia right now. You don't you're the, the 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 rights that you thought you had, freedom of movement, freedom of of expression, freedom of religion, all of the most basic civil rights in Australia do not actually exist, in my view. Um, it was almost like this major test to see whether or not Australians would bow down, and they did quite significantly. And those that didn't were arrested, brutally charged, which a lot of them now have been thrown out of court. Surprise, surprise, because they go against human rights and they were just stupid to begin with. Like you're charging somebody for not wearing a mask, walking down the street outside, socially distancing. You arrest them, lock them up for weeks. I mean, there's some cases that I was seeing that was absolutely horrendous. In Sydney, the second lockdown, I mean, even the first lockdown, they shut down parks, of all things, thinking that the the great outdoors, they shut down my outdoor workout equipment. I'm just going, well, stuff this, I'm still going to use it anyway. And the neighbors, one of them filmed me and was going to dob me into the police. I ran after her and said, excuse me, why in the world are you filming me without my permission? And she got all scared because A, I wasn't, socially distancing b i wasn't wearing a mask she was she got all irate at me and i said if you send this to the police i will personally go down there with you i will personally go there with you and tell you and tell the officer why i was doing nothing wrong and then i don't even know what she did with the video i didn't get in trouble then but in my area specifically, they had these areas of concern, LGAs. You weren't allowed to go five kilometers outside. And if you did, there were police everywhere, Jay. I'm not, I've seen more police during that period of time than I ever have in my entire life. No joke. So many police. If you went outside of your LGA of concern without a specific reason that was deemed acceptable by public health, only by public health, you would be charged. You get a fine of some description because you are contributing, even if you didn't have COVID, you're contributing to the spread. I'm just like, what on earth? They also, at the harshest point, you had a curfew of 9 p.m., I think it was, then one hour of exercise, which I'm just going, how in the world are you going to police that? (laughs) That doesn't make any sense to me. What is the cop going to ask you? How long have you been out here for? You say, oh, 30 minutes, but you've really been out there for two hours. How's he going to know? 
Like it just, it didn't make any sense at all, but it all came down to, I love this power. I am going to use this power on the vast majority of the population, but it didn't make any sense because people in the West paid for it considerably because they're the more religious side, I think it is, versus people out in the East in the more richer suburbs. And then the people in the West are sort of the poorer demographic, right? People in in the Eastern suburbs in actual Sydney, we looked at it, they've got a higher economic growth. They're vastly more wealthy than everybody else. They're less religious too. And now it's like everything was normal for them. I went out one time and uh, I went over to Manly. I couldn't believe it. People were playing golf. People were out having a good old time. They're at the beach. It was as if COVID wasn't in their area. It was only situated in this one little group in the West. It is like it, it only decided to attack the West. I'm going, what in the world is happening here? It's so it discrimination. <laughs> it was it was like the virus decided that it wanted to just go after this one little area in 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 Sydney and not the other area. How about that? Going after the poor but not the rich. <laughs> it made zero sense to me. But that's the way it was. You couldn't say anything. You were shut down on social media. You were uh, an, another individual um, was actually arrested at his home for saying something on social media. I'm going, what is happening to my my country? What is happening to Australia? Yeah. but And if you didn't take the vaccine, you were, you were you're uh, an outcast. The right? unvaccinated were the enemy. Yeah. Well, I saw, I mean, I... I it's just a, like to the, the, just go come back to this theme of inhumanity. I saw uh, the New South Wales health officer Carrie Chant give a press conference where she was talking about uh, about about you know about, about what to do during the lockdowns. The new, this 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 like this crazy lockdown you guys were in, and she said, "Well, you you know you, you probably have you may have to go grocery shopping if you when you go grocery shopping and you see a friend at Aldi's." You you uh you know be sure not to say don't look them in the eye don't say hello don't don't talk it's not it's I I know you want to, to be friendly but it's not friendly just just do your business and get out do not talk to your neighbor it, uh, I mean it's just it's one of these things where like like who is she right mm-hmm. to know that you're that it's that that you should be isolated like why does she get to decide. For the entire population, that, that talking to your neighbor, it, even in outdoor settings, might be dangerous. Um, like, why is why not talking to your neighbor not part of human well-being? It just, I, I mean, I, I I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it's like public health officers shouldn't be talking to the population like that. Again, Jay, it just came down to she was earning quite a bit of money during that time. She also had a great deal of power, so everyone would look up to her. There was Brad Hazard, Kerry Chant, and Gladys Berejiklian. Oh, Hazard, right. uh, he, I saw him give a talk, uh, give a press conference, where he talked about like the invisible enemy. 
Yeah. It could be the, the virus could be anywhere. It could be at the beach. It could be just you open the door and there it is getting you. Right. <laughs> like this, cre- like creating this. Uh, you remember this, this one, Jay? I um, do all too well. <laughs> uh, so it's, and it's like, you know, you would listen to this guy. Look, you're a, you're a public health professional. You don't panic the population with this nonsense. Right. You, you have to give people good advice about, about like, you know, I don't, I, I didn't ever think that anyone should intentionally inflict, get infected. But I think what you want to do is focus your attention where it's going to do the most good. Don't panic people. Uh, focus the attention on nursing home populations. Uh, it's complicated to protect them. They, 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 you can't just isolate them because that's bad for their health too. Um, like structure your your response where it'll do good without causing panic. And I think that that the the, the Australian authorities really failed at that. Um, I mean, we haven't even talked about the the quarantine facilities in Queensland or something, uh-huh. or or like Michael Gunner talking about vaccine mandates. Um, it was truly, it was truly shocking. Uh, by the way, we're, I'm criticizing Australia. I have a, a, at least as harsh, if not more, uh, criticism for uh, American authorities uh, who who were. Uh, I mean, they just, they just you know, like in New York, um, they they mask toddlers, two year olds. Mm-hmm. For 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 years, saw the video on the basis of no evidence. Yeah, what good is masking a toddler going to do, and what harm does it do to toddlers to have to to be masked up? I mean, we're seeing kids with with delayed language development as a result of this social anxieties. Um, we should have been thinking about this during the pandemic. Instead, all our health authorities thought that the only health uh, threat that mattered was COVID, rather than all of the the other myriad uh, health threats that we face as, as humans. Yeah, we could spend ages talking about the vaccine mandates. I mean, we were forced to get it, sadly, and I was scared because I had adverse reaction to just normal vaccines when I was a baby. So I haven't been fully vaccinated because I had an allergic reaction. It would have killed me otherwise. So the doctor back then said to my parents wisely, it's not a good idea to vaccinate Jay with all these other vaccines because he's had an allergic reaction and any if you do any more, it would more than likely kill him. So I've been okay ever since. And uh, when it came down to your freedom, your job, or take the vaccine, I was going, you can't do that to people. I'm not an anti-vaxxer at all. I'm all about choice, but the choice was literally taken away. And now they're going, oh, we didn't force anybody. We didn't force anyone to do it. I'm going, you did. You gave everyone literally an alternative of their finances, which they're already in a dire position to, to supply for their family and provide versus you get the jab and then you're not doing your bit for society. It's like emotional blackmail. That was just at a heightened level, and anyone that didn't get it was perceived to be the enemy. Like I got a vaccine exemption from a very wise doctor who was against all of the rubbish to begin with. I got the exemption, but that wasn't good enough. The I had a mask exemption as well from my cardiologist because my heart is enlarged. I need to be able to breathe properly. The amount of looks that I got, Jay, if I walked the, down the street, is as if they wanted to bash me. I'm just going, 
I, I don't feel safe in my own, in my own like uh, suburb because of all the fear that had been created onto, it was neighbor against neighbor. Like if you're not doing your bit, if you're not following along, if you're not following the message of these so-called health professionals that couldn't keep their information straight one minute from the next, the goalposts kept on moving. And then the, the messaging, it was like a great marketing ploy. I kid you not. It was like, you get vaccinated, we're going to stop the spread. Everyone got vaccinated. The, the spread continued. I mean, everyone like, and then the messaging changed around that. <laughs> it just, it was absurd. Absolutely absurd. I know it happened in America as well and certain states. New York was nuts. California, I know. Gavin Newsom. Like, where do these people get off? That's what I'm wondering. Like, what's going on through your brain? Seriously. I mean, I think um, that's a that's a complicated question. I I, I do like let let you, I, I want to try to like um, let's assume good faith on their part. Mm. It's hard, but I, I, but I think it's worth worth to see. Okay, could you could you land at what they did with just pure good faith? So imagine you you uh, believe that the this is a deadly virus. It is a deadly virus for certain, mainly for especially for older people. It's a deadly virus. Um, uh, you you believe that you have a responsibility to protect your population from it, right? Um, they do. They have a responsibility to protect the population. That's part of part of their job. Um, and so they the the thing is that they don't there's stuff they don't know about the virus. They don't know. Uh, they don't know. There's stuff that they don't really know about the interventions that they're doing, other than the fact that they're like violations of basic civil liberties. Right. So um, you can imagine you can imagine making a case saying, well, look, these these were good faith efforts, excessive, but good faith efforts to try to protect the population. Uh, but the problem with like that is like that only goes so far. Right. So at some point you cross over from, OK, I, I didn't know what I was doing and I just did this and therefore and, and, I, and I and I regret having done it to let's keep doubling down because if I admit that I was wrong at uh, now, people will think I was wrong all along. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you're, and you know, like, and the, and the health advisors, they're so narrow in their focus, right? So it's one thing to say, okay, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist and I'm a professional that studies this. And here's what I can tell you about this disease. But don't ask me about the economic harms. Don't ask me about other health harms because I don't study them. You could say that, right? That's that would be a reasonable thing for an epidemiologist, an infectious disease epidemiologist, to say. Um, but they didn't say that. They just said this: that you you have to listen to me because I know infectious disease epidemiology or virology or immunology or whatever. And anyone else who has other expertise is not relevant to the question now. Um, and so I think I think that the good faith assumption of good faith, I think it buys you some 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 mercy for them but at some point they stopped they crossed the line past far far past where their expertise was into a, a place where it was just hubris only they and only they knew how to stop the disease they and only they knew how people should live their lives and uh, it didn't matter basic protections in civil society for civil rights none of that mattered nope and I know we could spend a lot longer, honestly, 
talking about all this stuff. Jay, I know you've been so gracious with your time. I feel bad for keeping you for so long. I know you've probably got so many more things to do in your day, but thank you so much for your willingness to talk about all this stuff and your courage as well. And I know that I put you on the spot with one or two questions. <laughs> You've done an amazing job. Is there anything that you want to say to my audience anywhere that they can go to learn more about you uh, before we officially end? Uh, so I, I, uh, I'm, I'm weirdly active on Twitter, although before the pandemic, I never had a Twitter account. Um, it's Dr. D-R, the letter J, Bhattacharya, B-H-A-T-T-A-C-H-A-R-Y-A. And then, um, so Dr. J Bhattacharya on Twitter, and then I have a new, new podcast pr a project called, uh, illusion of consensus. Oh. So if you go to it's, it's on Substack. So it's just, or illusion, uh, uh it's just put my name and illusion of consensus and you'll find it. And we interview people, right? Right. Uh, I'm doing this with a journalist, a young journalist named Rav Aurora, uh, who, who, uh, operates out of Vancouver, in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, um, and so the, the goal there is to uh, essentially to, 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 to document uh, the methods by which that that's, that governments and um, and scientific organizations created an illusion that there was a consensus for these policies and other policies and, and, and related policies when in fact there wasn't. Um, focuses on free speech rights. Um, I know, I've, in fact, I, I've, I read that uh, Australia is now considering a bill to limit free speech rights. Yep. It's uh, under Michelle Rowland, the communications officer. And I'm not happy about it at all. Not one bit. It's, it's, <laughs> this is, but this is a common thing that's happening throughout uh, throughout the world, right? That like the mm -hmm. the the governments are have decided that they don't want to let these kinds of conversations happen freely, or at least not to to, to limit to be able to limit the reach of them. Um, uh, and yeah, as a result, what that what's happened is that the governments have, have, have used this power to protect outside criticism of their own misinformation. And it's it's just it's uh, I think uh, a, a step backwards from uh, the normal Western commitment to civil rights. I agree with you on so many fronts, and we didn't even talk about what happened in Canada with Justin Trudeau, another dictator of sorts. And yeah, there's so many so many things. Perhaps we can have you back. Jay, we'd love to have him. Love that. That was really fun two. to talk with you. Uh, you, you. You asked me questions I didn't get. I've never gotten asked before. It was interesting to talk about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's all I aim, my friend. I really do. And we didn't even get to your testimony either. So we're definitely going to have to organize a part two to this conversation. But thank you so much for having a conversation with me for part one. Love to talk with you, Jay. Take care now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.